Welcome to the 10 Minute Medic, the podcast for busy paramedic students. This podcast takes one medical subject and explores it for a maximum of 10 minutes. Here's your host, Dr. Bill Young. You're listening to the 10-Minute Medic, the podcast for busy paramedic students. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Young. In part two of our shock in the pediatric patient, we'll review the primary types of shock and take a bit of a closer look at how the management of each is similar and how it is different. Within the American Heart Association's PALS class, shock is broken down into four categories, hypovolemic, distributive, cardiogenic, and obstructive. Keep in mind that your patients do not come categorized in neat boxes with only one thing wrong with them. Elements of more than one of these types of shocks may be present in the pediatric patient that you're called to care for. Once you have rapidly completed your acquisition of the history and physical, you're ready to begin the treatment of what you find. Let's begin our discussion with hypovolemic shock. It's the most common type of shock that may present in the pediatric patient. It comes about because there is a decrease in the volume found within the vasculature. This will lead to a decrease in preload and its corresponding filling of the ventricles. Ultimately, stroke volume is negatively effective and cardiac output is decreased. There are two etiologies that you must consider when dealing with hypovolemic shock. The first is hemorrhagic shock, which occurs when your patient experiences severe bleeding, either internally or externally or both. Hypovolemic shock, on the other hand, is often caused by a medical issue such as severe vomiting or diarrhea. These symptoms can be brought on because of an excessively high blood sugar, hypothyroidism, or plasma loss because of burns. The severity of hypovolemic shock is directly related to the speed and the amount of the fluid that is lost. When assessing your non-traumatic patient for hypovolemia, be sure to look for signs of dehydration, which include the generalized sick, weak appearance, capillary refill of greater than two seconds, Mucous membranes that look pale and dry in the absence of tears while the child is crying. The more of these findings that are present, the more serious is the fluid depletion. According to the American Heart Association, dehydration is defined as a loss of water with varying loss of electrolytes, leading to a hypertonic, isotonic, or hypotonic state. The severity of the dehydration is size-dependent and can be often underestimated by the healthcare provider. Current research shows that the sooner a child receives isotonic crystalloids, especially if given within the first hour, they seem to recover better than those who do not. The administration of such fluids is instrumental in preventing your patient from moving out of compensated shock into a more serious state of decompensated shock. Obviously, you'll want to gain vascular access, but depending upon the severity of the fluid loss, this may be difficult at best and impossible at worst. If you're not able to establish a peripheral IV, do not hesitate to place an IO in your patient. Current fluid replacement guidelines include the administration of 20 milliliters per kilogram of body weight of an isotonic crystalloid solution. If you get a positive response, repeat the bolus. If you get no response, repeat the bolus. In other words, plan on the administration of at least two boluses of fluid. These solutions are often either normal saline or lactated ringers. It's generally accepted that you'll need to infuse three milliliters of fluid for every one milliliter of blood loss. 
Anytime you administer large amounts of fluid, be sure to periodically assess your patient's breath sounds. This holds true for all patients regardless of their age. Occasionally within the hospital or during an interfacility transfer, you may come across an infusion of colloids for hypovolemia. Colloids is a protein-based solution that's effective in pulling water out of the interstitial tissues and moving it back into the vasculature, thus increasing the blood pressure by increasing the circulating volume. The ideal fluid replacement, if the cause is hemorrhage, is blood. The use of blood adds red blood cells to the circulating volume and increases the oxygen-carrying capabilities that crystalloid fluids lack. Although becoming more common than it was five years ago, pre-hospital initiation of blood products is still novel. However, I do predict that it will become much more accepted within the next five years as the challenges of blood storage are addressed in the pre-hospital arena. Keep your patient warm. There's a certain degree of body warmth that is required for adequate production of ATP. The last thing you want is your patient burning through ATP because she's cold. While doing this, assess the patient's blood glucose level. Some children can deplete their carbohydrate stores much more rapidly than can adults. Do not let a low blood sugar sneak up on you. As the child enters compensated shock, their respiratory rate is going to naturally go up. This may result in a transient period of respiratory alkalosis as carbon dioxide is blown off. As the child begins to tire from the fatigue of the rapid breathing, and the breathing begins to slow, she may transition over into a state of metabolic acidosis. Now, it might seem logical to administer sodium bicarbonate to offset this acidosis, but this is not indicated. The key here is to use fluid resuscitation to restore perfusion. The body is designed to tolerate metabolic acidosis for a short period of time, and the administration of bicarb would be harmful for your patient. Let's transition over a discussion of distributive shock and what it does to the body. Distributive shock, you may hear it called vasogenic shock, comes about when the dilation and constriction action of the vasculature has been impaired. The big issue isn't so much that the arteries don't dilate, because they do. They're simply unable to constrict. As a result, you have a much larger container with less fluid pressure inside. The pathophysiology of this is something like this. First, because of the massive vasodilation, peripheral vascular resistance is decreased, often drastically. This results in pooling within the veins and poor tissue perfusion. Because of this pooling, the venous return to the heart is reduced, as well as the cardiac output. The three primary causes of distributive shock include anaphylaxis, an injury to the central nervous system, or sepsis. Signs and symptoms of distributive shock can be misleading in the, in the case of a nervous system injury, your patient may be in compensated shock, yet have a normal or bradycardic heart rate. The Heart Association's PALS course discusses three types of distributive shock, septic, anaphylactic, and neurogenic. Let's take a brief look at all three of these now. Septic shock occurs because of a reaction to an infection that leads to an instability in the perfusionary status of your pediatric patient. It is the most common type of distributive shock seen in children. The earlier that you diagnose septic shock, the easier it is to deal with, and it leads to a minimizing of organ damage. Septic shock tends to occur in a two-phase process, beginning with peripheral vasodilation. The first phase is often referred to as warm shock. This comes about as toxins caused by the infection prevent the catecholamine system from inducing vasoconstriction. The heart rate increases in order to maintain cardiac output. 
The capillaries will also begin to become permeable, allowing fluid to move into the interstitial tissues. As septic shock continues unabated, the patient enters the second phase, known as cold shock. The heart and respiratory rate will still be elevated, but cardiac output continues to decrease. At some point, bodily systems begin to fail, affecting the kidneys and liver early on. The goal of treating septic shock is to identify the cause and eliminate it. Obviously, that's not going to be possible from a pre-hospital perspective. Our primary focus will be to support perfusion for the body by giving it boluses of 20 milliliters per kilogram of an isotonic crystalloid solution. The goal here should be to give enough fluid to reverse hypotension and supporting a good solid blood pressure to ensure end organ perfusion. Again, as we stated earlier, monitor your patient for fluid overload by frequently assessing breath sounds for the development of crackles. If the patient does not respond to a fluid challenge, consider the use of a vasoactive pharmacological intervention such as norepinephrine for warm shock and epinephrine drip for cold shock. Once your patient reaches this state, you may want to consider the use of an advanced airway for ventilatory control. Because pediatrics have a very low functional residual capacity as well as poorly developed intercostal muscles and diaphragm, they may tire out quickly and go into respiratory failure. Let's turn our attention to anaphylaxis, which is a severe allergic reaction that occurs acutely when the patient is exposed to an allergen. It's different from the normal allergic reaction in that the magnitude and severity of it is so much greater. The danger with anaphylaxis is that it affects so many of the body systems at the same time. From the cardiovascular perspective, your patient will exhibit tachydysrhythmias and severe hypotension. Airway issues come about as angioedema is noted, especially in the upper part of the airway. This can be accompanied by abdominal cramping and vomiting that could lead to an airway obstruction issue. The decreased cardiac output results in an altered mental status, syncope, and a sense of impending doom. The primary focus of anaphylaxis management is to reverse the histamine mediators that caused the issue in the first place while supporting an adequate cardiac output. The main pharmacological agent used here is epinephrine administered at 0.01 milligrams per kilogram IM. Your maximum single dose should be no more than 0.3 milligrams. This can be repeated as needed. The administration of epinephrine will serve to prevent or reverse hypoperfusion as well as cause vasoconstriction. Shortly after the administration of epinephrine, establish vascular access and administer boluses as needed. Albuterol may be effective to relieve any bronchospasm that may be brought on by the disease process. The pediatric dosing regimen of albuterol is 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per hour via nebulizer with a maximum dose of 20 milligrams per hour. Follow-up medications include diphenhydramine that will help to eliminate the effects of anaphylaxis as well as a corticosteroid. Keep in mind that a steroid may take hours to take effect. Neurogenic shock is caused by a disruption of the nervous system to control constriction and dilation of the vasculature. The most common pre-hospital causes of neurogenic shock include head and spinal cord injuries. The most common area of spinal injury that leads to a neurogenic shock occurs at the level of T6 and above. Pediatric patients with neurogenic shock will present with symptoms of hypotension without a corresponding compensating tachycardia. Generally, you'll have a lower diastolic pressure with pulse pressures that begin to widen with subsequent measurements. The management of neurogenic shock focuses on support of adequate oxygenation and ventilation of your patient. In addition, 
The patient's ability to maintain warmth may be compromised. Provide supplemental warming or cooling as the patient may need. Because the core problem with neurogenic shock is the massive dilation of the vasculature, fluid replacement is indicated at the rate of 20 mLs per kg. Again, as we stated before, assess your patient before and after each fluid bolus to assure that they're not being placed in pulmonary overload. Inotropic drugs such as epinephrine and dopamine administration may be effective, but make sure that you're following your local protocol in this regard. When a critical mass of cardiac tissue dies, leading to the impaired cardiac output, cardiogenic shock becomes a real concern. This can be brought on by issues such as an acute myocardial infarction, which is rare in the pediatric patient, to a traumatic incident that results in cardiac tamponade. In the early stages of cardiogenic shock, the signs and symptoms may mimic those of a hypovolemic shock. Therefore, identifying a cardiac cause may be a bit more difficult. One diagnostic method of helping to differentiate the two would be the administration of a small fluid bolus, no more than five to 10 milliliters per kilogram to be given over 15 to 20 minutes. Monitor your child closely. If there is no improvement after the bolus, the most likely cause is cardiogenic in nature and not hypovolemic. Your primary goal in the treatment of cardiogenic shock is to maximize cardiac output while minimizing the cardiac workload so as to not damage any more cardiac muscle. One of the best treatments that can be done for your pediatric patient would be the reduction of preload rather than the giving an endotropes such as dopamine. Endotropes would indeed improve cardiac contractility as well as increased cardiac output, but they may have an undue negative effect on myocardial oxygen demand. The treatment for such patients involves giving a number of small fluid boluses, such as we spoke of earlier, of about five to 10 milliliters per kilogram over 10 to 20 minutes. While you're doing this, evaluate the patient's work of breathing, breath sounds, as well as mental status. If these boluses do not have the desired effect, you may be called upon to administer a medication such as dopamine. You must be very careful in the use of dopamine and titrate it to minimize any unnecessary increase in the cardiac workload. The dosing regimen for dopamine is the same as that of an adult, two to 20 micrograms per kilogram per minute. Even relatively minor episodes of shock, regardless of the etiology, can be devastating for your pediatric patient. If not treated quickly and properly, it can deteriorate in cardiac arrest, which kids have a poor prognosis. The earlier you recognize and the more aggressive you are in your treatment of a pediatric shock patient, the more likely you and the patient will have a positive outcome. Thanks again for taking the time to listen to this slightly extended version of the 10-Minute Medic. In our next podcast, we'll take a look at diabetic emergencies with a special emphasis on the pathophysiology of high and low blood sugars. I hope you will tune in.